Uh, morning, everybody. Uh, it's lovely each week to see uh, new faces and people that uh, I don't recognize. My name is Simon Harris. I'm the senior minister here. And uh, hey, come and say hi before you leg it out at the end. It's great to see you. We're in week three of Inside Out. And it struck me just a few moments ago that wearing things inside out, wearing a jacket inside out would be uh, a strange thing to do. If someone says you've got your cardigan inside out, you feel awkward and embarrassed and you change it as fast as possible. If someone says you've got your underpants on the outside, you're going to feel embarrassed. You're going to go and change it as soon as possible. Uh, And so living inside out feels awkward, at least at first. It feels uncomfortable. It feels the wrong way round. And yet we're beginning to see that the kind of life and the kind of kingdom that Jesus calls us to is inside out and often upside down. And it feels uncomfortable at first or perhaps still for a long time because it's not the normal way. God is calling us into a new normal. And it's everyone else that won't think it's normal. We'll be the normal ones. You're not sure, are you? You're traumatized about the pants on the outside. I understand that. But what if the the awkwardness that we feel, if we could push through and live a new normality that took us closer than we've ever gone to the way of Jesus? How cool would that be? He's turning us inside out. So we're on week three. If you're catching up, you can find everything, bullingtonbaptist.org.uk forward slash inside out, and it's all there. You can tweet, uh, hashtag inside out, and this morning, number three, would I get out of bed for this? So, would you? What motivates you? What gets you up in the morning? Or should I say, who gets you up in the morning? Do you get up grumpy in the morning, or do you leave grumpy in bed in the morning? Is it the alarm clock that gets you up in the morning? What is it that gets you leaping out of bed? Why is it that on the weekend your kids can leap out of bed and on the weekdays they can't? What is it that motivates us, that drives us, that stirs us in our lives? Or a different question, what do you live for? What do you live for, really? Do you live for your job? It's very common in our culture to live for the job that you do because it gives you a sense of identity and purpose because you love it. Or or do you just get through your job because you hate it and it's a necessary evil because you're living for the weekend or you're living for the summer or you're living for those times you can go on holiday or whatever it might be. What are you living for? What drives you? Paul is very clear that this inside-out life, this missional life, is hard and demanding. And unless the motivation is right, then we will not get out of bed for it. He writes from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, so the the chapter before the one that David just read from. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Yippee, it sounds fantastic, doesn't it? Verse 12, so then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. This missional life, if Jesus is to be believed, will take us to the kind of cross-like places. Jesus was broken and poured out. And at the end of his life, he broke bread and he poured out wine 
because his life would be broken and poured out. And then he said, you are the body of Christ. So there is an expectation that we, if we live this missional life, this inside-out life, we will need to be broken and poured out. Now, no one usually leaps out of bed and goes, that's the kind of life I want. No one says today, do you know what I really need today in my perfect world is a bit of brokenness. If only I was broken a little bit, then I could identify with some of the others in church this morning. You are deeply deceived if you're in that place. No one thinks, how can I pour my life out today? Usually we think, what can I pour into my life today that my life might be valuable and worth something? And Jesus says, no, your true worth is found when you pour it out. When you go the way of the cross, take up my cross and follow me. You see, there are three core motivations that plague the human soul. Ambition. We want to be on top. It's a very powerful driver. I want to be in charge. I want to be the one that plays the tune while others dance. Or what motivates us is approval. I I want to be liked. And I so want to be liked, I will be slightly different in the different contexts in which I have my life, in order to make sure that you like me the most in those contexts. So I will be a certain way at work because I think you might like that. And I will be different at church because I think you might not like that, but you might like this. And so we're motivated by a sense of, do I belong? Am I liked? We want to be accepted. And thirdly, uh, appetites. Appetites. We want to be satisfied. We want to feel full, whether it be food or money or sex or opportunity or experiences or, 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 or. I want to be satisfied. And and those are the, the core, the core motivations. And probably each one of us has got a number one, one that's a bit further out front than the others. We all suffer with all of them. Most of the time. That's the encouraging news over with this morning. But, but there'll be one of them that's probably a bit further out in front for you. And maybe if nothing else this morning, or even nothing else this week, for you to ponder these three drivers that plague the human soul would be a very worthwhile exercise. Because notice what happened to Jesus right at the beginning of his missional life. He was tempted with ambition. We want to be on top. The devil says to Jesus uh, on a very high mountain, if only you'll bow down to me, I'll give you all this. It'll all be yours. Your ambition will be complete. The kingdoms of this world will belong to you. You will be the boss. You will be on top. And Jesus said, no. And then the devil had a go with something else and said, well, how about this? If you throw yourself off the temple, everybody will say, you are amazing, Jesus. You are the one we want to be with. We are the kind of person that we want to hang around with. You are the one that makes it happen. Everybody will approve of you if you show yourself like that. And Jesus said, no. And then, as he was hungry at the end of 40 days, 
the devil said, well, just have some of this bread. Turn some of this bread into stone. Turn some of these stones into bread. And you can be satisfied. And Jesus says to the devil, you know nothing about what really satisfies. There is something so much deeper that I'm living for. Now, this is so important for us. Because which motivation did Jesus accept as he began his ministry? Answer, none of them. None of them. He said no to ambition. He said no to approval. He said no to appetites. The life of Jesus is a rejection of all these values that drive our normal, natural lives. Jesus wants to turn us completely inside out. The reality is, for our Christian uh, uh, Western life, culture, church, and so on, me, you, all of us, is we bolt Jesus into the midst of our lives, but most of the time we find ourselves living with these motivations of ambition or approval or appetites. We need Jesus to fix us in those areas because we have to say no to all of them in order to embrace him. What's the motivation that we're to live by? Paul says the motivation to live by is Jesus. Is Jesus. And maybe that's why Paul was such an expert missionary. Because in his life he'd smashed All of these laws that we usually live by. Turn to Philippians 3 just for a moment. Someone got a pew Bible number. 1180 in the Bibles in front of you. Philippians 3. And Paul says some amazing words here. Verse 4 He says, though I myself have reason for such confidence, I can be motivated, he's saying, by any of these things because actually I've got most of these things going on in my life. I can appeal to ambition, I can appeal to approval, and I can appeal to appetites. And he says, look, if anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, in the natural way of living, the way we've just described, I have more. And he goes on to boast, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. In other words, I've got it all. I'm the kind of guy you want to be because I'm ambitious and I'm on top. And that's why others delight in me. They want to be like me. They affirm me and so on. They approve of me. And actually my appetite, my satisfaction in my education, in my wealth, in my status is complete. And then he says, but whatever was to my profit, whatever I thought I'd got by living that kind of way, whatever I thought was mine because of the laws of ambition, approval, and appetites, verse 7, I now consider loss for the sake of Jesus. The surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things, I consider them rubbish. Rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Jesus 
calls us to live by a different motivation that's rooted in him. That's why when they were dragged before the council in the early days of the early church and they were threatened to shut up or to be booted out, they go back to their guys and they don't go, what are we going to do? If we want to be ambitious, then we're going to have to suck up to these religious guys, you know. We're going to need to network with them a bit. What are we going to do if we, if we want to uh, 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 live well? Well, we're going to need to get these religious authorities to approve of us. What are we going to do if we want to be satisfied with, a, with, with the kind of life that we'd kidded our wives and kids that we're drawing them into? We can't have these guys on our back. No, they'd said no to all of that. And so they pray, Lord, consider the threats of this council and help us to keep going for Jesus, for Jesus, for Jesus. And Paul's the same, isn't he? Back in 2 Corinthians, he says a couple of times, we do not lose heart. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 1, and then again a bit later on, we do not lose heart. I want to ask all of us this morning, how are we going to be on this journey that turns us from inside out, that has all the awkwardness, the embarrassment, the the kind of change in understanding that we've begun to talk about, like wearing my jacket on inside out, how am I going to live like that and not lose heart? Paul says, doesn't he, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So just four things this morning, really quickly, that we need to allow to become the motivating, the driving agenda of our lives. Otherwise, if you're looking to feed ambition, and if you're looking to feed feed approval, or if you're looking to feed appetites, you will lose heart after 30 minutes of trying to live the Jesus life. Because he turns us inside out. What are those motivations? Number one, motivated by his love. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, Christ's love compels us. He says, I may be tempted to give up, to lose heart, because this is really difficult. It was difficult for Paul. He had to undo the Apostle Paul, almost everything he'd known, in order to follow Jesus. Not because the ultimate tradition that he bought into wasn't a godly one, but all the trappings of his religiosity, all the way of life that was caught up with his education and his culture, he needed to turn himself inside out to follow Jesus. And he says, I'm doing it because of Christ's love. Let's face it, love motivates. Boy meets girl. Washes, first time, five years. That's what love does. All over the country, husbands pick their socks up off the bedroom floor for love. (laughs) Something like that. Love, someone skips in and there's a different countenance about them. And you say, what's happened to you? (laughs) Fallen in love. And Paul says, I'm going to do it for this Jesus that I've come to know and has captivated my heart. Because it's you, I'll do it. We say that, don't we, in English? Because it's you, I'll do it. In other words, there are things I will do for the people that I love that I would not order it. Because it's you, I'll do it. Paul's saying, look, look, what do you need to understand about my life? Because it's Jesus. 
this ministry might be really hard and I get misunderstood and I get whipped and beaten and shipwrecked and I've, I've lived with nothing and I've been on the road for a long, long time and my friends have deserted me and everyone makes fun of me and I've got this thorn in my side that I, uh, and life's a struggle. But because it's you, Jesus, I'm going to go for this because it's you. And if we're going to be turned inside out, we have to be captivated by Jesus like that. And the way Paul remained captivated like that, the way he remained allowing his love for Jesus to grow, was that he he kept focusing all of the time on the cross. All of the time. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died. And that was it for him. He says, wherever I go, this is what I talk about. This is what I preach. Christ and him crucified because that's the deal. That's what keeps my love from growing cold. And he would personalize it. I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. You, he says, were bought with a price. He, he never forgets how it began, what it's all about. Will we do it for Christ? Secondly, motivated by his transforming power. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. For Paul, this wasn't a theological nicety. This was what he saw day in, day out in his ministry. People being transformed. Think of all the people that started following him because they were following Jesus. Think of all the people that were sent out on missionary journeys as Paul discipled them. These were people who'd had their lives radically changed because they'd met Jesus. Paul knew what it was day in, day out for people uh, without hope to find hope. People living with no purpose to find purpose. People feeling lost, suddenly feeling found. People being on the outside, finding a place to belong. Remember in Ephesians when he talks about the way the Spirit was working in such power and people were healed and released and freed. For, for Paul, every day was seeing people transformed. And that's got to grip us. It has to grip us that Jesus can transform people like that today. I'm going to ask Julie to come and share just some personal reflections on this question that I ask her, that I ask all of you. What motivates you to live a missional life? Uh, and as Julie shares, she draws together some of these things that we've been seeing uh, um, from the Scriptures in her own experience. Julie, would you come? Um, I became a Christian when I was 16 years old uh, because of a friend of mine, quite out of the blue and quite suddenly. And up until that point, I'd considered myself an atheist. Um, my family... Uh, would have nothing to do with God or church. My parents had never had a faith, and neither had their parents before them. Um, 
So when I discovered Jesus quite suddenly as a teenager and found out everything that he'd done for me and the relationship that he was offering me, it just seemed really natural to want to tell everybody I knew about it because it was a complete revelation to me. So I was really keen to share that with people. I I discovered something really amazing and I just wanted to share it. Now that was quite a long time ago, more more time than I'd like to admit really. And, And the way that I share my faith and where I live and who I know and what I do has changed hugely, but I actually still feel the same. I've discovered something really amazing and I want to share it with those people around me and that's what motivates me. But that actually there's more, more to it than just that. I can remember a few key moments when God has spoken to me about the people around me. As a teenager, not long after becoming a Christian, I went on a coach trip. We were, I think it was a school trip, and we were being driven through mid-Wales. And when you do that, you drive through all the towns and villages. There's no way around it, really. And I can remember looking out of the window and seeing people, lots and lots of people as we drove through these towns and villages. And I can distinctly remember feeling God's love for these people that I didn't know who were outside the windows. And I think when when you see a a mass or a crowd of humanity, it makes you think about their individual lives and what's going on. Well, it does that for me anyway. And it was like God showing me his beloved children. And most of them obviously wouldn't know him. And it really touched me. And I started to think about how these people might find out about Jesus. That kind of passion in me has grown over, the, over time. And um, when I was, uh, not long after that, I suppose I started to think about, well, was God asking me to be a missionary overseas? Because that's what I thought you had to do in order to tell people about Jesus. But as time's gone on, I've realized that I'm actually a missionary here and now. And a few years ago, uh, at the Pentecost service, which is in a few weeks' time, the first one that was held in Ipswich, I had a similar experience of hearing God speak to me like that. There was a big crowd, I don't know if you were there, and I kind of hung back from the crowd and watched as people walked past, people that weren't involved. Most people just walked past, you know, getting on with their shopping, heads down, um, not taking much notice. Uh, At best, they would probably have a little look at the choir and then carry on with their journey. And the the big crowd of Christians in front of me kind of basically unaware of these people who were walking past at the back. And it it kind of really spoke to me. I I got to thinking about, you know, who are these people? What families do they live in? What are their stories? Do they know Jesus? How are they going to know Jesus? And it, it broke my heart, actually. Um, for our town that these people probably didn't know anything about what Jesus was offering. Most of you will know um, that my day job, I'm I'm a GP, and I find myself with a massive privilege of meeting lots and lots of people. And um, I'm constantly reminded that although people look fairly okay on the outside, Actually, for most people, at some time in their lives, they're not okay. 
People turn up to the doctor nowadays in a way that they used to turn to their priests. So people come when they need help. So I hear a lot of stuff. I see people in physical, emotional and spiritual pain every single day. I see people who are struggling just to get by. People struggling with addiction. People whose relationships are less than ideal. People asking, why me? People with status anxiety, how can I keep up with the Joneses? People stressed out by their work conditions or what they're being asked to do. People crippled by unforgiveness. People who've got deep wounds because of abuse or neglect or or disappointment. People struggling to accept chronic illness or the ageing process. People, especially older people, who are lonely. People with chronic anxiety, people living with fear, people worried for their children, people facing death. I could go on and on and on, and this is just in a normal morning surgery that I see these people. And these people are living on our streets, in our schools, working with us. And if you ask them how you're doing, they'd probably say, I'm fine. But actually, they're not really fine. And I've never really lost that passion as a new Christian I think maybe because of the job that I do and the people that I see Um, Jesus said that um, he came to give life and life to the full and often when I sit and listen to people's stories I catch myself thinking you need Jesus you need Jesus much more than the antidepressant I'm about to prescribe or the painkiller that I'm going to give you Fundamentally, most people need Jesus first and foremost. I'm not saying that they don't need the medicine. They do, but they need Jesus. And I think to myself, how can people cope with what everything that life throws at them, that it throws at us as well, but how can they do that without Jesus with them? And sometimes it makes me weep. Um, maybe not as often as it should do, but sometimes it does. When I see our town and the people in our town in this kind of pain... And it gets me thinking about how does God feel about that? How does he feel about his children and, and how they go their own way and face those consequences on their own? And for me, actually, it's quite a deep um, emotional and spiritual response. Um, I am Welsh and I am a girl, so I am quite emotional. Um, I can't help it. I used to think, I really wish I was a bit harder and I didn't get upset or, you know... Um, because that's the way you're told that you're supposed to cope in the medical profession, that you're supposed to man up, basically, and, you know, get really hard. Actually, I've come to learn that it's a really good thing that, that I've got a movable heart, because that motivates me then, when people are in pain, to, to try and share Jesus. That really does motivate me. Um, I realise for some of you, you won't be quite as emotional as me, Um, But the facts are actually still the same. And Jesus says that we're to love God and love our neighbour as ourselves. And actually, our neighbours really need Jesus. Brilliant. Thanks, uh, Julie, very much indeed. And I think one of the issues, one of the challenges for me is whether we believe 
whether we have confidence that the gospel, that Jesus, that his life can change, radically change, change so their lives have obviously changed, whether Jesus can do that to ordinary everyday people in our everyday lives. I wonder whether we've lost our confidence that the gospel really is God's power to bring that transformation. And I think one of the problems is because we, you and I, have lost that confidence and we've lost it because we don't often see it, we don't often see people's lives radically changed because of Jesus, we've settled for something else as the goal or the motivating factor. So we can settle for doing a lot of other things, whereas maybe for the Apostle Paul, he was only settling for seeing lives transformed. Last week, I spent time with someone uh, who, through one of our missional communities, has so changed because he's met Jesus that all his friends are saying, what on earth has happened to you? Now, yeah, thank you, Simon. Whoa, one person. And and I tell you, I was so excited about that because suddenly the kind of things we read in the Bible about people's lives being changed was suddenly true in our experience. Because most of the time, we do not see that kind of transformation, at least not up close and personal. And if we are seeing that kind kind of transformation, will you tell me about it because it's good for my soul? And actually listening, uh, a longer conversation, but thus for 30 seconds of someone's excitement at their friends seeing change in them was a tonic that would last me a couple of months. And suddenly I thought, that's pretty dry compared to the Apostle Paul and the early church. It was the tonic of every day, seeing God changing lives in a real, personal, life-giving, obvious way. When was the last time someone rocked up to you and said, what on earth has happened to you? And yet, we're supposed to be changed from glory into glory. Two final points, really quickly. They all tie in together as we come into land. Motivated by what we've been entrusted by Jesus' entrusting of us. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. That's a judgment for all of us, Christians included, to assess what we've done with the good that we've got. In fact, um, if you take your notes, write down 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 to 15. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 to 15, and give yourself a little bit time to read it. Because it talks about how we will be held responsible for the way that we've handled the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secrets of God. I will be judged on how I've handled the gospel that I have received. What have I done with my life since my conversion? How have I used my time, my money, my energy to serve the work of God's kingdom? Have I made full use of the gifts and opportunities God has given me 
Do your best to present yourself to God as what? A workman who does not need to be ashamed, but who correctly handles the word of truth. Jesus talked a lot about this, didn't he? If we take the gospel and we dig a hole and we put it in the ground and we keep it safe, how happy will the master be when he gets back? There is a danger that we are digging holes, protecting the gospel, keeping it all safe. We know where it is. We know what it says. It's all nice and tidy. We know where we can find it. And in our own ways, we've dug a hole and we've put it in the ground. The master will not be too chuffed when he comes back. And then lastly and finally, there is the final judgment that we read about here in these verses. We know what it is to fear the Lord. We know what it is for the reality to fall into the hands of a holy living God. Therefore, we try to persuade men. It becomes a matter of utter urgency. What gets you out of bed in the morning? What are you living for? Before my younger son goes to sleep, we sometimes watch real rescues. Make sure he gets good nightmares, you know. But he loves it. Police, ambulance, fire, all that sort of stuff. All the stuff that winds them up and gets their mind really active before they lie down to sleep. Uh, and in the midst of one of these programs just a few weeks ago, or whenever it was, watch it all on the, on the didgeridoo, what's it, Wi-Fi, what's it thingy. Um, uh, so I've no idea when it was on, that's what I'm saying. Um, the, the, there's, all these, there's all these stories of real rescues, and then there was this little cameo, this little clip of a story of a rescue of, of a group of friends, and they went skiing, and they went off-piste, and then there was an avalanche, and one of their friends was buried. And they'd done some avalanche training. They had eight minutes to find her. How did they spend those eight minutes. I have a feeling we are in our own eight minutes. How do we use our time? Let's pray.